Hello, welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. My name is Audrey Lochteff, and I am pleased to share this episode with you. Our lives are made of railroad stories, and we tell the stories of the railroad through the stories of people. Roundhouse Crosstalk amplifies the stories of people whose jobs, experiences, and legacy intersect with that of the railroad. Welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalks. I'm Ken Whitfield, the park interpreter too at the California State Railroad Museum. Uh, 2021 marks 40 years of the California State Railroad Museum. And in commemoration of 40 years, we'll be looking back and looking forward with exhibits, digital content, and social media. So this week, I am joined by our museum director, Ty Smith, to talk about uh, the museum philosophy and a little bit of behind the scenes into how we do what we do and the philosophical underpinnings for exhibits, interpretive programs, and even collections and library acquisitions. Welcome, Ty. Well, uh, it's a pleasure being here in, in your office on this show. It's great. Thanks for having me. The Tiny Desk Concerts yes. of the Railroad Museum. Welcome. So at the California State Railroad Museum, you know, we say that our lives are made of railroad stories. What does that mean exactly? Well, it, it's as close uh, a thing we have to a unifying theme. You know, I think one of the things that all institutions need to do is get to a level of clarity about what is the unifying thematic underpinning of all, all of its things. And as you know, in, in the California State Railroad Museum, we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of pieces in the collection. and Everything from big locomotives to ephemeral items to corporate records. You want to have some mechanism by which you make sense of all of that and connect it together. And it just occurred to me, and I think it occurred to a lot of us who were coming on at the same time about four years ago, that we needed to get to that kind of level of clarity. And uh, it took work. We all sat around tables and reflected on our own experiences. We all come from diverse backgrounds. Many of us are not quote unquote trained people in a classical sense, um, but we are people who wanted to do right by the collection. And, and so we started to, to think about what kind of museum this is. And it would be very easy, and I think a lot of people do this, um, today, in fact, as they, as they drive by or think about us, they go, oh, that's the train museum. But it's much larger than that. And, and in thinking through that and going through that process, we started to think about railroading, um, trains within railroading and railroading culture. And that really um, has, you don't have to poke very far or deep in the ground before all of that stuff just starts bubbling up because it's everything, it's our language. Think about how many times during the day have you got off track or derailed or you're trying to gather up a full head of steam to accomplish one task or another. Maybe you complete it and celebrate and you blow off some steam or something, right? So <laughs> it informs our language in ways that we don't, about which we don't even think consciously. Um, we go to doubleheader baseball games or you know, all of these things creep into our language. It, it, is, it is our um, uniquely American language. But it's more than that too. It's our iconic music, a million or so railroad songs 
rock and roll, the blues, the syncopation, all of that emulates the rhythm of the rails. You know, and, and because it was so, so much a part of the experience, the American experience, um, all, all music you know, is, is in a sense railroad music. And there are a ton of songs that just literally or figuratively talk about trains. You know, we're always leaving on a midnight train to Georgia or hearing that lonesome whistle blow way off in the distance and kind of imagining ourselves jumping up on a freighter uh, to escape whatever it is that makes us feel stuck, you know? <laughs> um, but it's also our iconic movies, you know? Uh, if you look through the, the classic, you know, American uh, movie catalog, uh, it's full of train, you know, train movies and or references to trains. You know, one of the earliest ones filmed right out here on the levee, you know, right here in Sacramento, right? So um, it's our movies. Um, but it's, it's deeper than that even. It's the spatial relationship to the world around us. Um, you can't drive across town without getting stuck in traffic sometimes and go, who put a freight train through this city? You know, this is dumb. But really the city was built up around the train. And all of them were, where there are people now, where there are cities where there is development, um, good chance that there was railroad activity because our, our towns and cities and, and urban development um, blossomed because of the siting of railroads and and the transportations of goods and services and ideas and all of those things right? and and so where there are people there were trains and railroad stations where there are not people now are rural areas were places where the trains never went so the the very spatial relationship of the world around us was informed by railroad activities 150 years choices were made for us 150 years ago right? about how we go and where we go and when we go. Um, so if we thought about it in that way, then all of a sudden, it's not about um, trains or discrete histories, but it's really um, a historical development that is braided through our everyday lives. And so we came to it with some clarity, this idea that our lives are made of railroad stories. You know, whether we think about it or not, we are a railroad people, right? And, and that's true, generally speaking, of the United States, certainly true of the West, and California is the most railroad of states, and we live in the most railroad of cities in that state, Sacramento, which was, you know, we're, we right now are sitting next to the border of what was the largest industrial site west of the Mississippi, which happened to be the Southern Pacific Locomotive Works. You know. So we're railroad people. Yeah. So after we established, you know, our that guiding story filter that, you know, theme statement for all intents and purposes. Um, we really started working with that in the exhibit development and looking at the kinds of stories that we tell and the way that we tell those stories um, and shifting, you know, conversations that are really heavy technically driven to stories about people. And I remember the first story that we actually applied this to was the winter exhibit, Snowbound in the Sierra. And I really love that exhibit because the brilliance of the story was it wasn't about the rotary snowplow. In fact, the rotary snowplow in that story never even made it to the train that was stuck up in the Sierra. It was about the experience of being trapped on the train and what that was like as a passenger, what the Pullman Porter crew was doing with you know, rationing food and keeping people comfortable and safe. The second track of the story was about the crews coming to save and rescue the passengers. So the Mexican track workers with the shovels were actually the heroes of the day. They came in and dug the entire train out of the side of the mountain so it could continue on. And 
the passengers could hear them singing while they were working and it brought them like comfort and joy like while they were inside waiting to be rescued you know and i just love that you know connection to individual human stories and that larger story filter of that our lives are made of railroad stories really connects our community to that story as well and then now to that piece of equipment which has a more personal value because you can connect your own experience of like being trapped in a car for eight hours or driving over the pass and having to turn over and put chains on your car mm -hmm. and getting stuck in the snow and like real world experiences maybe we're not in a train but we can connect those things well, that, that really is the challenge of our time, and I think it's the challenge that we um, set out um, to face when we all sat around the table and tried to figure out how do we, how do we create a larger um, story that's more relevant to um, a broader base. Because in 1981, the people who built this museum and the first visitors, uh, they weren't so far away from it. They weren't, yeah. they were much closer to the golden age of this all and in fact, many of them were lamenting sort of the passing, so they were present at the passing. And so you didn't have to fill in the gaps quite so much. You know, these things had more intrinsic, inherent meaning based on their experiences. But now we're 40 years later, and people um, tend to, whether they ask the question or not, they, they walk around with the unasked question. And it's like what Victoria Kastner used to say, a colleague of mine at Hearst Castle when I worked there, she said, you know, people, all of them listen to the same radio station in their own head, WIIFM. What's that? What's in it for me? Right? Mm -hmm. And so whether or not that's a conscious thought um, or just a subconscious internal thought, as people walk through, um, further detached from those experiences of the golden age of railroading and railroading culture, um, they need more connective tissue. They need more connection. And the way to do that is not to be more technical in your description of how locomotive works or whatever, because um, they may grow to, to that level of interest. And hopefully, if we do our jobs, then they will um, eventually ask those questions. But that's not going to think that's not going to be the thing um, with which they connect immediately. Probably, um, we as a species are much more interested in each other, right? That's why we we've been telling each other stories. And, and, and recycled stories, you know, the hero's journey. I mean, you know, yeah. just change the, the um, era or whatever. But it's the same story, right? And it's about people and it's about struggle and it's about how we face adversity. Those are the stories, right, that, that we have been telling each other since we have been each other, right? Like, since the beginning. And so um, you're, you have much more of a chance to connect with people if you're telling a very human-centric story because people automatically place themselves in those circumstances. So if we're telling a story about the rotary snow, snowplow, there may be a, a, a subset of the people who visit are like really interested in the technology of that. Um, and that's great. But there's going to be a lot of other people who go, what's this big thing? <laughs> and if we, if we then tell the story of what that big thing is through the story of, um, as we did with the, the Stranded streamliner, you know, that you know, here are these people leaving happy like Chicago in, in, in the winter, you know, and, and just imagining sunny California in their eyes, and they think they're going to take this luxury streamliner to sunny old California, eh? and then all of a sudden they get caught in the, the storm of the century, you know, 100 feet of snow or something, and, and, and also like mid century hubris, like, 
well, we've got technology for that. We've got these rotary snow plows, no problem. You know, if this train gets stuck, we'll just send them on up, no problem. But at a certain point, even the best technology can't get through the snow in the Sierra. And what it comes down to is what it always has come down to, dudes with shovels. You know, at a certain point, like, the technology fails, and the only thing that's going to get those people out of there is that. And so that's a story um, with which everyone can relate on some level. And if that connects them then to uh, our preservation efforts and us as the keeper of those things and those stories, that's what we want to do. And that was the, the brilliance of telling, um, connecting people to what we have, but through that story of human you know, hopes, fears, dreams, aspirations, work, fear, you know, all, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, and that um, message of connection, too, is something that as we worked through several temporary exhibits with the Our Lives Are Made of Railroad Stories story filter, we started realizing that we needed something more to kind of define um, what it is that we're trying to do in exhibits and interpretive programming. Uh, and that's when, you know, Nina Simon kind of codified all of those ideas around in the museum community of being of, by, and for. Mm -hmm. And we kind of started working and thinking about working with her organization, but then realized, you know, we already have this kind of built in. And then the three pillars of, you know, our philosophy kind of came out of that, which are, you know, museum as community, laboratory of learning, and a museum without walls. And that I feel like the museum as community aspect of that really speaks to the connection that we've been making with exhibits and our lives are made of railroad stories. Yeah, I think um, the of, by, and for as a, as a unifying museum concept is, is really beautiful. It builds on a lot of work. I mean, I remember going through, as a trained public historian, um, encountering information a decade ago about this transition from the museum um, as a temple to the museum as a forum. So the temple is a place where you go get handed information down from on high. It's the narrative that you're supposed to receive. You take it passively, and um, that's it. But the museum as forum is much closer to this idea of, of by and for a community created, a co-created, because it's you get to talk back. You get to say something back. It's not just information passed down from on high. It's you being able to inscribe your experiences onto the museum through dialogue, through participation, through, in the case of our Snowbound in the Sierra exhibit, we asked um, much larger questions about, um, yeah, about what that was like. We've done other exhibits, Death Valley Scotty, for example, where we're talking about this eccentric you know, figure who is in this, you know, probably what, what is the mother of all marketing stunts for the Santa Fe Railroad, although we don't know for sure. Um, but you know, we then we ask more you know bigger questions about what uh, you know what people would hope to accomplish, what their um, futures dreams are, and being able to inscribe that for others to see, and um, for for others to be able to interact with that. So the, that that idea of having a community or co-created or shared authority is something that is really deep in the literature. Um, and something certainly that um, I think all of us in our different ways from our different backgrounds, whether it was more from the muse museology, museum studies background or public history or curatorial practice or um, standard history, like kind of all came maybe with different vocabulary, but certainly informed 
solidify those ideas because we were all coming uh, to that moment you know, from, from our own social context where those things were really important in terms of our educational programs and the, the kinds of things that the industry um, was talking about and moving towards. Yeah, yeah, and the co-created exhibits too, you know, even really working on developing that and developing our community as well. And the thing, I've, the exhibit that that is most apparent is the Chinese railroad workers experience that we put together, which is a permanent exhibit in the museum that we put together in 2019 for the anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad. You know, we convened a advisory, a community advisory committee, and really talked with them about what they wanted and what they wanted to see and how they wanted that their story told. You know, one of the things that we wanted to do with that experience was to turn that advisory committee idea on its head. Because so often you'll have an institution or a museum and they'll uh, bring in a group of advisors to reflect on kind of their thinking or um, to co-sign on a strategy. And what we wanted to do with that advisory committee was to say, um, no, we're actually the advisory committee. We, we want to, to share authority. We want to co-create an exhibit that really speaks to the lived experience, especially of descendants, you know, people who came to this history not through textbook, but through story. And an important family story, uh, re really something that was central to their identity, and um, privilege that you know, to say, what is it that you would like to see if you were given free reign to tell the story? What would that be? And you're not the you're not the advisory committee. We're the technical advisory committee. We're the museum people who know how to, you know, take take raw material and make that into um, exhibit. We we know how to take story and 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 then put that into interpretation that really connects with people. Right? And so we became the advisory committee to the community who was actually in charge of the exhibit. And um, that really, to me, was a, a, a really significant down payment on a larger concept that we want to have in the museum, just as a, as a default practice, um, is to that we're the advisory committee and then the community expresses itself um, through uh, space. Yeah, and the beauty of that community development too is that it has lasting impact. We have now a lasting community. And I connect with, I interviewed Baldwin Chu in our last podcast who was part of our committee mm -hmm. and is a descendant of railroad workers um, about his film documentary. And we still have that like professional connection but also that deep museum connection mm -hmm. um, and have built those relationships over time. We also did it in a way where we didn't um, think of the exhibit as a fixed thing. And, and so this, we're not unique in this experience where yeah. you put up a major exhibition or, or add to you know, something that already exists, but then it's kind of there. Because mm -hmm. when are you going to have the time, resources um, to get back to it? You know? And so a lot of times it's kind of the set it and forget it model that's, that's born out of necessity high ambitions and need to turn your attention to something else. Mm -hmm. But the way in which we created that exhibit was to be expandable mm -hmm. using large digital screens versus printed panels means that when the next person who comes in and goes, wait a minute, my, my great grandfather, or my great, great, great uncle worked on building on the Transcontinental Railroad and these are the stories or these are the objects that were passed down through my family. I'm here on my own kind of pilgrimage I want to share the story too. 
that then all of a sudden that can move from a conversation to them being featured in the exhibit because that's infinitely expandable. You can, you can have as many descendant stories as you want. There could be a million of them. Um, there happens to be five or six or seven or whatever the original you know, set was, but the idea was always to expand and to build on it and to build the infrastructure that would allow for us to do that in a way that was um, easy and um, approachable. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing about technology use in museums, too. And instead of using technology for technology's sake, using it as a method of expanding and, ex and extending that story. And this is a great segue into our second pillar, which is that we are a museum without walls. Because we've taken those descendant stories and the Chinese exhibit and some of the digital content we've created for in-gallery use, and have expanded that to digital exhibits and online. Well, it's, it's no longer the case that we should be content with simply putting on the open sign or putting out the welcome sign and, and doing a, a good job at greeting the people who come through the door. Um, that uh, was the kind of standard practice for almost every cultural institution um, up until this point. But um, the reality is, is that we live in a different world now. And we have to run down the street, either literally or figuratively, and, and, and really draw the connection, draw it out, Con you know, connect the dots for people and say, hey, this is what we have here for you. Because um, so often, time is the barrier. And so people are always doing a rough sort right, about what interests them. Mm -hmm. And so for us at the, at the Railroad Museum, there is the possibility of people walking by and, and asking too simple of a question, do I like trains or not? Uh, you know, as we're in the marketplace of ideas, if we're competing, um, so people are doing this really rapid, rough sort about whether they're into it or not. We know that uh, because our lives are made of railroad stories, we, we understand that there's not, not a person with whom we can't relate in some way and, and make some meaningful connection. But we have to do a better job at, at you, know, you know, sort of, hey, come in here. We got something for you. And digital is a big part of that. You know, there, there is a danger in thinking long-term-wise in terms of building relevancy and maintaining constituency and all of the support that a cultural institution needs of being viewed as the big brick building at the edge of old Sacramento. We're not. The museum is the world. The museum is their backyard. The museum is the train tracks that don't go anywhere anymore, but are still encased in concrete. Um, it's the, the site of whatever Pullman strike or you know, whatever it is. That's the museum. We're the hub. You know, we, we're, we have the facility to kind of be the keeper of memory, keeper of story, keeper of objects. But um, our, our higher calling in, in this instance is to draw that neat line between this building as the museum to where people live the bulk of their lives and connect them with that um, our lives are made of railroad stories message about relevance. So digital helps us do that because it no longer means that you have to come to the museum to be of the museum, to care about the museum, to support the work that we're doing, to find relevance in that work. You could be in your living room in Dubuque or, <laughs> or Dubai, <laughs> either way, like, it, like worldwide, right? And so digital exhibits allow us to um, 
connect with people and, and allow people to experience us, whether, whether or not they can make it to Sacramento. And I think a lot of times, um, if they can make it to us digitally, then that might serve as the best advertisement for coming here physically, which would be great. But um, it's not necessary. You know, I mean, I think that, that we have um, a bigger promise of connectivity, even beyond just sort of our, our visitors, you know, who come here. It's, it's an opportunity. Yeah, and especially with the closure over the last year, we've really expanded our digital offerings. You know, we, we have our podcast going, we've got social media, Instagram and Facebook, um, where we've engaged in ports, California State Ports Home Learning, in a way that we haven't really done in the past. Um, and we've been doing CSRM Digital Classroom Live, where we've been doing our educational programming in the digital world. Um, but that's also given us a great opportunity to digitize and create videos using interns, which has also been an expanded, you know, it's a, that digital museum without walls, but also leads into, you know, that we're also a laboratory of learning and that our interns from the advanced lab of visual anthropology at Chico State have been coming down to help us do Westward Bound, which is one of our educational programs. Well, all that kind of digital learning and museum without walls, you know, was really important to us. It always was, but admittedly, it, you know, was on a slower, slower simmer on the back stove as we focused on improving the physical museum, creating new exhibits, all of those things. A lot of it, the impetus for that was the uh, lead up to the sesquicentennial, the 158-year anniversary of the joining of the Transcontinental uh, Railroad uh, at Promontory Summit. Um, but with the pandemic and us being closed, then it gave us the kind of space and out of this necessity to, to stay engaged with our community, to be relevant, to take the thing that was on the back burner and put it on a high boil on the front burner. And out of it came some really amazing, amazing things that did help um, teachers teach what they were going to teach anyway, but in the context of uh, not abstract ideas, but real life places, people, and things, and objects that later students can come and behold uh, if, if they so choose. So it was really a, a good way to engage with a much larger community, the folks who might not ever come here. Right? So all of a sudden our impact grows uh, in, in a greater sense. But it is important not just what we did, but how we did it. And so your, your reference to using interns is really important because at our best, we're a laboratory of learning. And, and I would say that's true of museums more generally. We are stepping into a golden opportunity to um, help the, the formal education system and be a part of the formal education system in a way um, that maybe was not possible um, in the past or not apparent, uh, perhaps, in the past. A lot of parks, a lot of museums are field trip destinations, and that's great. We want kids to come on field trips and be inspired and do all those sorts of things. but. Um, we can do even better than that. We can be central to the educational system because we have the answer to what you, what and how you engage with things like Common Core. How do you teach across and learn across curriculum? That's what we are. We're, we, we are the living embodiment in terms of the history that we keep and um, the technology, the, the history of technology 
to be a laboratory for STEM and STEAM learning, to have students um, learn about archives and library administration, to have visual anthropology students uh, like learning by doing, uh, not just an abstract thing, but something that uh, actually lives and works in the world. We taught a class um, here, uh, and we turned 16 graduate students loose, and we said, come up with an exhibit. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did. They chose to do a public history of farm to fork as a, as a concept, which is the city's um, slogan. And they gave it really deep roots, and they gave it meaning um, in a way that, that didn't exist when you just read the tagline. And it wasn't just a paper that they did that a professor read and graded and then they put it in a folder somewhere. It lives and works in the world. It, it, every day, um, you know, our, our visiting community sees it and they learn from it. You know? And they've graduated, but their, their work lives on. And I, I think that museums generally, but certainly the California State Railroad Museum, just has a great opportunity to be at the center of formal education. Now they have teaching hospitals, why don't we have teaching museums? We're building one, we're starting to do it um, through robust interns, internships that, and students who are engaged in like, like real life things that work in the world. Yeah, and it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> well, you want, that, you want that kind of vitality, you know, yeah. I think, and, and you know, no museum has all of the resources it needs. Yeah. You talk to the, the most highly funded, well-staffed museums, and they'll talk about how they need more people and they need more money. No, it's just, yeah. it is the curse of, of all museums. But we are, we're a small, nimble staff. Um, but I think, uh, I know, I could just speak for myself, that um, I come alive more when I'm teaching while also accomplishing all of the things that I need to do as museum director to, to advance you know, our various mission, our mission and our initiatives um, towards relevancy. And I think that it, it, it really does um, add an extra layer of meaning to the work that we're doing. And, and also, like, the, the students who, who participate in the program, they really get to point to something that's real and tangible. They'll never forget it, you know. And so, they are part of our community now. We didn't have just an experience; we we built community. Well, thanks for joining us today, Ty. Is there anything else you want to share before we kind of close our podcast for the night? Well, I think you know the only thing that comes to mind is just how valuable partnerships are, and how this museum wouldn't and couldn't do the work that it does without all of the different partnerships that um, we have established and, and that have existed around the museum. So we get a lot of support from our nonprofit foundation, the California State Railroad Museum Foundation. We get a ton of support from volunteers. Now, for example, you know, talk about being a museum without walls after people come and experience the museum and read about history and walk on uh, static trains. They can go and ride history. We have an all-volunteer run uh, a railroad uh, that's a three and a half mile excursion that goes along the old Walnut Grove branch line that used to connect um, some of the richest agricultural land in the world for the export of produce to, to the nation and, and beyond. And people can ride that history. So it's not, it's not just a static thing. It's, it's, you know, 
truly a museum without walls, you know, in that sense. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and also, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that uh, allows for vintage equipment and steam engines and mm. old passenger cars and, you know, stuff to run. And that, and that is the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens in the rail yards shops. You know, you drive by it. People in Sacramento drive by them all the time. But two of the remnant buildings of uh, the Southern Pacific rail yards shops we own. And that's where we keep equipment. But every day we have staff and volunteers out there who are working on the maintenance, the restoration, and the preservation uh, of rolling stock and locomotives for display in the museum, but also for work out on the Sac Southern Railroad. And talk about a prime opportunity for teaching career technical education and learning from you know hammering on metal from the past, you know working on old technology, but in the service of the future, in the service of whatever it is they do beyond that, you know kind of a foot in the in history, so that you can pivot and have a foot in the in the in the future, and all of that happens because of this community, this wonderful community that exists uh, around um, the railroad. But you don't have to be a volunteer or an employee to contribute, and that's one of the big messages that we tried to do with our. Our Lives Are Made of Railroad Stories sort of larger campaign, and that is to say that everybody has a railroad story, right, in all the ways that we started the conversation about, whether it's the, their favorite song or their uh, great-grandfather, great-aunt, or somebody worked in some capacity around the railroad. The odds are that, that you know, people's families' histories are rife with um, that, or people who've just experienced what it was like to be on a, a you know, streamliner going from San Francisco to Los Angeles, or better yet, from Los Angeles to New Orleans or something, and what that was like, what, that, what, what it was like to experience that. And as much as we're the keeper of equipment and records and you know, all, all of the ephemeral uh, objects related to the, the really broad expanse of railroading experience, we're the keeper of stories, too. And we can't have enough of them. We need more of them. We want more of them. We want people to inscribe their experiences. So part of what we've done with our larger campaign is to invite those stories. We've encouraged people to go, and people people are shy. We haven't had as many stories as uh, I had hoped, but I, I certainly will continue to invite them because it allows us to connect with um, people and allows people to connect with us. But if you go onto the, our website, the California Railroad.museum, is that a forward slash, backslash? Backslash. Backslash. My story. You could go in there and you just tell us all about your, your railroading uh, DNA because it's w within us all. And, and that then helps us tell different stories and new stories and uh, allows us to inscribe those stories on some of the objects that we have in our collection. And it's a way to have really truly a community museum. And that's what we're striving to build. Well, thank you, Ty. We'll put the link to sharing your railroad story in the show notes below. Thanks for joining us today, Ty, and talking with us about how our lives are made of railroad stories and the pillars of the philosophy of the museum. It's been a great conversation. Um, you can also follow us for more 40th anniversary um, digital engagement on our Instagram and Facebook, and follow the Railroad Crosstalks for more. If you enjoyed this week's episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share, like, and subscribe. 
This episode was created and produced by Jason Rankins, Jake Jennerjohn, Audrey Lochteff, and Kim Whitfield. This has been Roundhouse Crosstalk from the California State Railroad Museum. See you all next time.